Hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're going to be continuing the book The Wind Calls the Tune by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet, and we're on chapter two. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, and there for $5 a month, you can not only support the podcast, but also get access to exclusive Patreon only book readings. Now, on with the story. Chapter 2 Down Channel. As the police launch towed us away on Friday, 11th of May, from Rodney Pier on the South Bank Festival site, we began to realise the difficulty of the task ahead of us. We had been given a magnificent send off, and we were most grateful to the festival liaison officer for the efficient organisation, but it was so splendid that to us it was almost frightening. The cheering crowds lay behind us, and ahead stretched the quiet River Thames, leading to the English Channel, which was unlikely to be so calm, and finally to a few thousand miles of open ocean where anything might happen. When the launch had towed us under the last bridge, we slipped the tow rope, waved goodbye to the friendly river police, and hoisted sail. A gentle easterly wind was blowing upriver, and as the light faded, so did the wind. On the last of the ebb tide, we drifted down to a mooring buoy and made fast. One of us made a way into the cabin and lighted the lamp. What a shambles there was inside. Cases and coats, blankets, the radio, bottles and a huge mound of our precious seawater converters. Neither bunk had even sitting spaces, but after an hour's work stowing things properly, we had our bunks cleared and were ready for our first meal afloat. Soup, biscuits and cheese and tea. Outside, the tide flowed up the river and a heavy mist had descended, causing some anxiety among the skippers of the river, for the air was filled with near and distant hoots and whistles. We slept soundly until the first light of day silvered the sky in the east. As we rubbed sleepy eyes, we felt a bump alongside, and then the clatter of iron-shod boots on the decks, and the next instant two steaming cups of tea were thrust at us, Another kind service from the river police. After breakfast, we got underway with a moderate south-easterly wind blowing. The Thames estuary, with every possible type of ship floating on its broad reaches, is a fascinating spectacle for sailor or landlubber. Every mile on the way to South End produced interesting sights. Huge manufacturing plants, ships, lonely-looking salt marshes and river refuse dumps all lent character to the scene. By midday, we were near South End, but the tide, which had been against us for the last hour, was gathering momentum, and as we were making hardly any headway, we tied up at a buoy near the pier. It was here that we borrowed a saw from a large motorboat that came alongside, and to the amazement of the skipper, we proceeded to cut off four inches of the boom. We then fitted our mizzen mast, which had been lying on the cabin top, we had found out just before we started that the boom fouled the mast, but could not find anyone on the festival site with a saw. At 4pm, we hoisted all sail, including our new mizzen, and with the northeasterly wind still blowing steadily, we headed southeast across the estuary. By dusk, we sighted Whitstable, and soon after the shore had faded away, we saw myriads of twinkling lights in its place. All through the night, we hugged the coast past Whitstable, Hearn Bay, the Reculvers, Birchington, and just before dawn we sighted the lights of Margate ahead. 
It was a grand night's sailing. The sun had made its appearance by the time we turned south at the North Foreland. The persistent northeasterly wind was invigorating, but cold, and now it blew us from the port quarter. This was the kind of sailing in which the Nova excelled. The bow wave growing larger and the smooth wake she left astern cobwebbed with white foam lines. Off Ramsgate, we had breakfast of porridge and biscuits and marmalade with tea. Keeping to the channel between the dreaded Goodwin Sands and the mainland, we had four hours of ideal sailing. The sun took some of the bite out of the wind and the sea was blue with crestlets of white. On shore, the houses looked neat and clean and the cliffs, crowned with emerald green, seemed as if they had just been whitewashed. To complete the picture, a Thames barge with brown sails dark against the sky plugged towards us on the starboard tack, heading for the North Foreland. As we sailed nearer, we saw that she had the usual crew, a man and a boy, real sailormen. They gave us a cheery greeting as we passed and wished us a good trip. At one o'clock, we were off Dover and feeling full of joie de vivre, we sailed into the first entrance, across the harbour and out through the other side. Yachtsmen and farmers have one thing in common. They usually complain about the weather, but this day was perfect from beginning to end. Nightfall found us off Hastings and we calculated that in the last 24 hours we had travelled just over a hundred miles. Good going for a boat of our size. The northeasterly wind backed during the night and freshened and we had to lower the mainsail and set the trysail. In the early hours of Sunday morning it started to drizzle and added to the fine spray which was flung over us from a short steep little sea into which we were now plunging. A vile night to follow such a lovely day. With tongues like dirty bits of carpet and with tired eyes we gazed shoreward through the rain in search of landmarks to verify our position. The visibility had been so poor during the latter part of the night that we had not been able to see any lights. In the distance we could see some low-lying land but nothing else. We tacked in shore to get into the lee of the land and out of those wicked little seas. We sailed close to the shore for several miles and then recognised Bognor Regis. We had sailed 50 miles during the night. Now that we had made sure of our position, we had breakfast and mugs of hot sweet tea. Feeling more friendlily disposed towards the elements, we took stock of our position and realised that it had stopped raining and the wind had veered to the north. A soldier's wind for us, but it was bitterly cold. With our shallow draught, we can cut corners with less doubts about our going ashore than most cruising boats, but we cut a little too close to Selsey Bill, for even through the sandy water we could see the bottom, and we breathed a deep sigh of relief when we managed without mishap to scrape clear into deep, clean water. After passing Selsey Bill, we hauled down the trysail and hoisted the main. We sailed her hard for cows into the steep seas. Our foredeck was like a half-submerged rock and the cold spray bit into our faces. As we entered the Solent, we saw several sailing craft, most of which were well reefed down and this gave us a great pride in our boat for we now carried an unreefed main and were not overburdened. A friend of ours who happened to see us pass cows said we looked like a red-winged bird hurrying home to roost, and by late afternoon of the same day we sailed peacefully into Yarmouth upon a rising tide and a fading breeze. In the last 48 hours we had sailed over 200 miles with a favourable wind 
and our first leg was completed. In Yarmouth, we had many things to pick up and many things to do. In our efforts to be in London on time, we hadn't been able to fit the extra strong rigging we had obtained, so the next four days were spent splicing in a frenzied haste. We also checked and stored foodstuffs. The Nova, now completely loaded for a three-month voyage, looked very low in the water. Ominously low. In spite of the large amount of foodstuffs we had to carry, the Nova had such an excellent amount of storage space under the bunks and in the two large bins at the after end of the cabin that not a single food item was visible. We stored the seawater converter kits between the bunks and our radio was wedged among them. On the grey afternoon of the 19th of May we hoisted sail once more and said goodbye to the skipper. As we sailed out of Yarmouth, a friendly yacht honked its foghorn in salute and waiting for us outside the harbour were several sailing boats. Our parents were there to see us off and our friend Joe Flanders was busy taking pictures of the Nova and cursing the poor light. As we approached the Needles Lighthouse, the accompanying boats turned back one by one, shouting encouraging remarks and waving to us until they faded from sight. Suddenly we were alone on an apparently deserted sea. The rain, which had been threatening all afternoon, began to come down in earnest and the southerly wind freshened, kicking up a nasty sea. Premature night enfolded us before we were halfway to Dalston Head, bound for Dartmouth, but an hour or so later we could see the gleam of a flashing light ahead. We anxiously counted the seconds between each flash. Ten seconds. Yes, it was the light on Anvil Point, and we were where we should have been. After passing the light, one of us went down into the cabin to see that every article was secure, for soon we would be entering St Albans race. It was exciting enough when we were in it. The waves, which seemed concave each side, formed underneath the boat and shot her skywards, and then dropped her equally suddenly. It felt as if we were going up and down in a lift, operated by a madman. It was a really thrilling experience, with waves noisily tumbling all about us, but none came aboard and soon we were through the worst. Portland Bill lay 15 miles ahead, and by 1am we were near enough to hear the roar of the race, which was the one we had no intention of sailing through. It is probably one of the worst in the British Isles, and is to be avoided by all small boats. There are two courses open to the navigator. He can either go offshore about 10 miles and go outside it, or he can take his craft so close to the shore that he is liable to scratch his paint on the rocks. He will then, at the right state of the tide, swirl through in a narrow strip of comparatively calm water between the race and the shore. We had a quick debate and decided to take the shoreline route, waiting for daylight to do so. We turned the Nova round and headed into Portland Harbour so that we could have a few hours of restful sleep. And soon we were in the harbour and tied up to an enormous buoy normally used by a battleship and... Fully dressed, we lay down on our bunks and went to sleep immediately. We must have been very tired, for we overslept. We didn't force open our gummy eyes until nine o'clock, and as we had to catch the tide off Portland in a couple of hours, we had a hurried breakfast of biscuits and tea, and then hoisted sail. With due modesty, we think the Nova a graceful thing of beauty, and feel that she must have looked particularly lovely that morning sailing past the grim grey battle wagons anchored in the harbour. Her new, perfectly cut sails, dyed and waterproofed a gay brick red, her gleaming mahogany and as yet unmarked white topsides 
must have made her seem like a flower in a desert. A moderate south-by-east wind soon brought us to the approaches to the inner passage, past the race, and then followed a thrilling twenty minutes. The tide was rushing to the westward, and so were we. It made the land flash past at a speed not usually associated with sailing. To the south of us lay the race, a mass of broken, foaming water as far as the eye could see, and yet the noise was more alarming than anything else. A deep-toned, sullen roar. We heaved a sigh of relief when we were through and looked forward to good, plain sailing for the rest of the way to Dartmouth. The distance from Portland Bill to Dartmouth is 43 nautical miles, and we reckoned we should be able to cover it in about 10 hours, allowing for the fact that the tide would be against us for a greater part of the time. However, it took us 12 hours, for in the afternoon the southerly wind fell light and something was happening out to sea. Black cumulonimbus clouds were steadily mounting in the grey sky to the south, and the wind seemed to be softly saying, Wait and see, wait and see. We both had the nasty expectant feeling and looked at the barometer. And sure enough, it had fallen two-tenths since the morning. We could expect a gale soon, but hoped to be in harbour before it arrived. It was 10pm before we picked up Berryhead Light, and it was then that the wind began to increase and back to south by east, and we eased our sheets. An hour later we had Berryhead abeam and were going like a scalded cat, tossing and lurching, and at times planing along at the fastest speed we had ever done. All that was needed was some background music, playing Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. The madness of the night took hold of us, and we shouted into the darkness out of sheer exhilaration. We arrived at the mouth of the dart in what seemed to us an amazingly short space of time, but by now the wind had increased so much that the little Nova was definitely overburdened, with her full mainsail. However, we were soon in the lee of the land, and had only fitful gusts to help us pass the castles which, in days of old, guarded the entrance to the harbour. It took us a long time to find a free mooring in the bight, for it was a very black night. We didn't carry an anchor, and had no intention of doing so. For one thing, we couldn't afford the extra weight, and anyway, what use would it be to us out on the Atlantic? It had struck 1am by the time we were moored, and all sails stowed. We paused a while before going below and gazed around while the wind roared through the trees high on the hills. It was good to be in a harbour, especially in our favourite harbour, Dartmouth, which, incidentally, is where we first met and planned long voyages. As Dartmouth is the loveliest and most friendly port in the world, it was natural for us to take three days to tear ourselves away. We can explain away the first day, for it blew a full gale, and we certainly timed our arrival just right for it was definitely foul outside. The second day we said goodbye to our friends, and we seemed to have a great many of them, and then it was discovered that we hadn't got any paraffin or methylated spirits on board, and by that time all the garages were closed, so we had, of course, to stay another night. On the third day, the 24th of May, Empire Day, we had to go, for the Rotary Club had kindly given us a farewell luncheon, and it is a bit awkward to have an official farewell and then stay. We went to a garage on the front for paraffin, only to find that no containers were available. The kindly proprietor phoned Plymouth and, after much persuasion, got five petrol cans from the manager of the petrol depot. These were put in a taxi and delivered an hour and a half later. Of course, just when we were ready to sail, we remembered the methylated spirits and a friendly chemist 
obliged us, although by that time he was closed. At last we were ready, or so we thought, until as we stepped aboard we remembered that there was no aerial for the radio. Well, back we went ashore for one, and then we really were ready. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.